Welcome to Social Fishtancing, a production of Coastal Roots Radio at the University of Guelph. This is our continuing coverage of the impacts of COVID-19 on coastal fisheries and fishing communities. When COVID hit, there was this new enthusiasm for this direct sale path. So for the bank, you're not a fisherman. You do not exist in the eyes of the state. You're not going to change your system if this is a thing for a couple of months. Hello, I'm your co-host, Philip Loring. I'm joined by... Anna Harrison. And I'm Emily D'Souza. If you're new to Coastal Roots, we're an international collaboration of communities, scholars, activists, and others who are interested in supporting the health, resilience, and sustainability of coastal communities around the world. To date, this podcast is focused primarily on the experiences of fishing men and women in the United States and Canada. This week, we're once again expanding our horizons and bringing in new stories from Latin America, by which we mean the various locales in the Americas where Spanish, Portuguese, and French are the primary languages spoken. So essentially Mexico, Central and South America, and the Caribbean. A few months ago, we were delighted when folks at the nonprofit organization Future of Fish reached out to us to discuss a possible collaboration. Essentially, they said, hey, the stories that you're featuring on your podcast are the same things that we are seeing happening here in Latin America. So over the past few months, we've been collaborating with the Future of Fish team and the folks that they work with to gather stories about how small-scale fishers in Latin America are experiencing and responding to COVID-19. And the serendipity doesn't stop there. About the same time, we connected with Inez Lopez from COBI, or C-O-B-I, which stands for Community and Biodiversity in Mexico. They're a nonprofit that works directly with coastal fishing communities around Mexico to promote sustainable and just fisheries. So we went into this episode with a handful of questions, including how similar or different we would find their stories to those that we've already heard. What have been the biggest challenges? What have been the sources of resilience? No doubt, the social, political, and ecological context of fisheries in Latin America are all significantly different than in the United States and Canada. But in my experience with cross-cultural research, I've often found that there are really important and interesting similarities, despite these more obvious differences. We should start with a few words about small-scale and artisanal fisheries in Latin America. They are hugely important in several Latin American countries, Peru, Chile, and Brazil being among the primary. The vast majority of fish caught in these countries is destined for international export, but artisanal fisheries are also very important for food security, especially in rural and remote communities where commercial fishing is common. That's right. It's also important to note that these fisheries are, more often than not, part of the informal economy. That phrase, informal economy, refers essentially to any livelihood-related activities that are not protected, regulated, well-recognized, or valued at the institutional or government level. Many listeners might not realize that the majority of people in the world contribute to informal economies, work for which they often don't have worker protections or benefits, or sometimes even that simple acknowledgement of their importance from governing bodies. If you can believe it, informal economic work like we're going to hear about today contributes to two-fifths of the global economy, and in places like Chile, up to 75% of national economic activity. So... When you hear our guests talking about the fisheries that are not recognized or not formalized, this is what they're talking about. To set the stage, we're going to start by hearing from Mara Hart and Laura Fernandez-Cascan, both from Future of Fish. Mara is their Director of Discovery, which is an awesome title, by the way, and Laura directs their finance initiatives. We got started in our conversation with them by asking them to talk about their organization and its goals. Here's Mara Hart. 
we sort of smile and say that Future Fish is a small but mighty uh, nonprofit. We have about a dozen folks on our team and we're a really diverse set of experts. So we have folks with fisheries um, and science backgrounds, folks from business and finance, folks who've worked with development. Um, we also have worked um, often with anthropologists and ethnographers. Uh, so we really take this multidisciplinary approach to trying to understand how we can uh, how we can help fisheries to improve in a way that benefits the environment, the communities, and um, the long-term health of you know coastal systems. So when we go into a fishery, we look for where are there efficiencies or opportunities to improve the value, to improve the quality, to improve the functioning of organizations, again, businesses, and this is where Lara's expertise really comes in, so that we can maximize the value of, of the catch, which often then means you don't have to catch as much, right? It's that basic trade-off while also making sure though a lot of the challenges in fisheries are that these supply chains are very unequal right there's severe power dynamics and a lot of inequity and so how can we use some of that value to to help create more equity and more fair sharing of of that value and use that redistribution of value as a positive carrot to incentivize change it's really looking for where we can unlock those those positive incentives, those resources that are needed so that we can help meet pain points within the communities and in the supply chain and then redirect and restructure things to help, help the fishery um, be more responsible and sustainable long-term while supporting coastal communities um, with their livelihoods. Mara, can you give me a little more about what you mean by pain points? Something that is, is really important, you know, for, for folks listening to your show, I'm sure, you know, Coastal Roots, they understand coastal environment, coastal communities, but small-scale artisanal fisheries are some of the most vulnerable communities in the world. There's a, there's a day-to-day sort of pacing of, of supply and demand. There's not normally a lot of resources or safety nets built in. Part of the problem is when you have small-scale is there, there isn't a way to finance. There isn't a way to access loans and the normal type of you know, formal financial structures that exist for other kinds of businesses don't for fishers. Fishers tend to be independent contractors or they're often indebted to, to um, a middleman or a buyer. So when you have the case where a market collapses, which it did for most of these places, especially for small-scale artisanal fisheries that are export markets. So, you know, fisheries that we work with in Belize, it's a lobster fishery primary market is is Miami, you know, North America, but through Miami. In Peru, we work with Mahi Mahi. Again, most of that fishery is an export. That, um, and, and in other places around the world, that really caused major immediate acute crisis, you know, where communities didn't have food, they didn't have, you know, they didn't have money to buy basic supplies. Another challenge is that with artisanal fisheries, around the world, many of them are in more remote locations. And so the ability to distribute goods and get relief to these places um, is also just logistically more challenging. Um, and then the third thing is that, again, back, almost back again, why, why we focus so much on finance is that a lot of fishers are informal. They're not 
part of the, the formal economy. That means that they couldn't apply for the relief funds um, because they didn't have the paperwork to prove what their income was or that they were part of the workforce. They couldn't get unemployment. They couldn't get some of these benefits. And so for many, many reasons, the challenges of artisanal fisheries during this time, I think have been quite extraordinary and have, have really hit home to just basic fundamental acute stress on these communities around not only lost income, but moving into the area of food security crises. Um, and many of them also are in places where they don't have access to good health care. Now, we also dove into more detail on the impacts of COVID-19 by talking about a specific project that they are working on, addressing challenges, including illegal fishing in the Hake fishery of Chile. It's day fishery. They go out, they fish, they come back, they land their catch really early in the morning. It's sold and it would go through several steps through middlemen up to Santiago and then redistributed back out to these local, they're called ferias or open air, uh, sort of like um, farmer's markets. And in that process, a lot, again, fishers weren't getting great prices. And then the vendors in the, the farmer's markets were really pinched with only being able to sell for a small margin because consumers will only pay so much for, for the fresh product. And we were noticing that a lot of value was being lost in this very winding path that was happening. And so we've been working for about three years now with four different uh, fishing communities. They're called caletas, which are kind of like fishing coves. And we've been trying to identify ways in which we can help them improve, again, their, their business practices, look at diversification of products, look at quality, but also look at more direct um, routes to market and partnerships with some of these open air market vendors to um, be able to improve the, the value that um, is captured by the fishers, as well as um, helping the vendors to be able to sell legal product. So Hake is under a quota. The quota is allocated by region. So imagine Chile is this you know, enormous coastline and it's split by, by different regions. And there's often illegal fishing in areas where there's more Hake and not enough quota. Um, there's also areas where there's a ton of quota and not enough Hake, but they're not allowed to trade. So it sets up conditions for illegal catch. And so part of what we're trying to do with creating these more direct and traceable systems, so we're, we are putting um, data tracking in place, is to allow the vendors to assure their customers that they're selling legally caught product and giving the fishers um, a slightly higher price in return for that. When COVID hit, there was this kind of new um, enthusiasm for this direct sale path because so much of the supply chain was was getting messed up and the and the movement of the fish around the country was was shut down that these more direct units um more direct links excuse me made much more sense and so we've actually seen that some of this foundational work that we were doing has actually set the fishers up really well as well as the vendors to be able to respond to this crisis and be more resilient which has been um a, a really positive impact. Um, and so it's actually accelerated some of the work that we've been doing in that region and um, has also kind of, I think, helped overcome, you know, there's, there's always reluctance to change. There's always hesitation about how things are going to work. 
and it gave sort of that impetus for a few folks to say, you know what, let's do this now. Let's just try this. Let's see what happens. And now that we're getting positive results, we're seeing more momentum and, and growth in, in, in the effort to do that. We then asked Laura to reflect on the long-term prospects. If there's a single story we've been following, it's whether the changes and innovations we've seen materialize during the pandemic will stick. Laura was pragmatic, but also optimistic. This crisis is putting in evidence a lot of, mainly in these communities, you know, all the problems, like the structural problems that they have. You know, at, at every level, it's a community level, it's development, is 75% of the economy of Peru is informal. You know? That informality is like a circle of poverty, you know, because they are like living in that loop. So I, I see that if we do these strategies that are like short-term rapid response, in my side, again, are more related to how to react to the market, how to react with the working capital, how to negotiate with, the, with your uh, buyers, with everything. No? But if we do these strategies in a long, with a long-term vision, it can really be transformative. And more if we are doing it in, in partnership, that is what we are like looking for because the complexity of the seafood system. No? So I, I am a believer, no? I'm a believer that this, at least this crisis can, can bring us a little, um, a little change. No? I yeah, know. no, I, 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 think, I think so too. Um, I tend to be optimistic in that for a while now, there's been a tension, I would say, in, in the sustainable seafood community and those of us working in this space. So, so many of the uh, improvements that have happened in fisheries and the model for improvement has been this model that is an export focus. So getting North American and European more lucrative markets to pay higher prices. That's worked well to, to lift up some, some communities, but it's created a dependency. It's also created a problem with food security. We, we know this. Um, studies are starting to show like all the marine protein which is, and micronutrients that are critical for local communities and, and for local populations has been exported. So for both the food security and for the, the vulnerabilities that COVID has exposed to sole reliance on export markets, I do think we are going to see a shift in how these communities are restructuring their supply chains. Absolutely, are they going to go back and try to have some export market? That's, I think that will always be a piece, but maybe it won't be the 99% anymore. If we can do our work well, our regional local food systems where you are able to sell and distribute that, that marine protein or seaweed, whatever it is, um, into a local market and be able to have that be a viable part of your portfolio of products. Um, so product diversification, market diversification, but looking at the domestic markets as being part of that solution, or at least regional, before we just assume it's going to go to North America, Europe, or maybe China, you know, China is another um, big export. So I think that is a fundamental change that's happening. And I think it's in part because especially for many of the, the seafood products, they were going into the restaurant markets and the restaurant markets are not going to recover. They, they re, like not, not quickly. And again, all of these things are built on these individual partnerships, right? So if, even if restaurants come back, 
who's owning them and who's running them and whether they're going to want to make those same commitments to a supply chain, that's all going to have to be renegotiated. So I don't think in two years we're going to get back to um, you know, New York high-end restaurants being able to buy all this lobster from Belize necessarily. It's, it's going to look different. Now, to get an even more in-depth look at how COVID-19 is impacting fisheries in South America, we asked Future of Fish to facilitate some direct interviews. Graciously, Chris Giordano, the Future of Fish project lead in Peru, interviewed three locals who were involved in Peruvian fisheries, Edwin Houghton, Manuel Rey Purisaca, and Walter Olaya. Here, you'll hear Chris doing the translation. First, though, we thought we'd let Chris himself provide some background. The community, it's um, Lazlia. And Laslia is located um, south of Paita by about 40 minutes driving. It's, it's in Peru. And I, I know when most people think of Peru, they think of alpacas and uh, Quechua women wandering around in the colorful dresses. But uh, most people don't realize that Peru is mainly desert along the coast. And the Andes is kind of like this strip of green that runs down as like a spine within the country. And because of that, Paita in this community is in the center of a desert. <laughs> there, there's nothing around. Um, and the, the community only got electricity about a year to a year and a half ago. I don't want to paint a picture of like, you know, a, a traditional oldest community is poor because it's not. It's actually very rich. It's rich not only because offshore there's this island that um, is the northernmost point that you can find Humboldt penguins. Um, it's, on, it's up for basically being designated as a national park in the country. And many of the fishers, when I was speaking to them, actually attributed their food security during the, the quarantine to the presence of this island and them being able to return to their ancestral roots. Um, go out raft fishing and basically go out to the island where it's like a rocky reef style environment and, and fish what their, their ancestors fished. I haven't hit on this yet, but these fishers are one of three communities that are the main fishers of mahi-mahi in, in Peru. And um, Peru is the main producer uh, of mahi-mahi in the world. Um, so I like to say, I, I can't prove it, but I would love to say that uh, probably 50% of the world's mahi-mahi comes from these three communities. So this community is very important um, for anybody that loves a good um, fish taco. In his interview, Manuel, one of the fishers that Chris spoke with, talked about the importance of these fisheries as well. Here in Pira, the northern part of Peru, there is one of the largest artisanal fisheries at the national level, such as the squid fishery. We are dedicated to that activity. The fleet we clearly have is a squid in Mahi Mahi 1, and our specialization is what directly hurt us. Due to the vulnerability of our community, because we haven't had the necessary attention or at least the preparation by the government to be able to face the situation, because of the fear of being affected, we decided to paralyze our fleet even though the government had regulations that allowed artisanal fishing to continue. We feel that our government is not with us, and we wanted to decide to formalize our fleet, 
giving us the opportunity to export our product legally, which is a goal we have. But nothing has been announced. The government is still absent, and there we are fighting in the middle of a pandemic, helping our fishermen and ship owners. I don't know if fishers will go fishing because they don't have even enough for their family. They depend on their work, and it's hard because one has to consciously put oneself in their situation. And because we boat owners also came from there, we started as crew members, and we know that crew members depend on this job. It is something that processors don't understand and that this government does not understand. The artisanal sector is still forgotten, which ends up harming not only the ship owners, but an, also an entire supply chain that depends on this resource. And it sounds like price and demand issues have also been a problem. Right. Chris explained it to me this way. Even now, the fishers have started to protest because their prices have dropped precipitously. Um, some people are, are saying that it's because there's no more demand in China. Um, others are saying that um, pota or squid is a relatively elastic species. It, it's, it's replaceable very easily. And because of the quarantine and because of the pandemic being global, um, other fish stocks that are actually closer to home for what would have been the, the end market actually now are recovered enough so that they're able to go and fish their local species and aren't importing um, the squid from these communities. Walter Olaya brought this up in his interview with Chris as well. The reduction in demand at an international level has been seen in basically all our products moving into the food service channel. We work for processors that normally make products for the retail channel. With them, we have not had so much of a problem because the retail channel has been strengthened. But those distributors and large distributors of the food service channel are experiencing issues with their business. For example, we have problems with food service because sales fell dramatically. We even had production that we did not finish shipping because basically the clients had to cancel some orders just when Peruvian squid was gaining competitive ground. A Japanese client spoke to us about the red squid that they manage. Japanese fishers were capturing them and replacing our imported product in the domestic market. Spain has also had a very interesting catch of calamari squid, which displaced our squid in their market. Now, the matter of these fisheries being informal, which we mentioned earlier, that has had an impact on whether these fishers are receiving any support, right? Absolutely. Edwin put it this way. First, this sector is one of the very few sectors which has not been able to stop like the others that did completely. The artisanal fishing sector found that it could not stop because it provides everyone food. People have to feed themselves and that is where the conversation has gone. I believe that the artisanal sector should be one of the sectors that the government should put more emphasis on because it has been a sector that has helped a lot in terms of food processing and exports to create foreign trade. But instead the government has not seen the sector objectively because there is another large problem. It isn't 100% formalized. If they are not formalized, the state is not going to look at them in detail and say, well, they also deserve a piece of the pie because when the government gave a bonus for the artisanal fishermen, it only reached the formal ones. And within the Peruvian universe of artisanal fishing, only 15% are formalized. But you know, if I stand in front of a bank and I'm an artisanal fisherman and they ask me for their card number and I don't have it, and yet I say I work on, let's say, the Giordano boat, it's my boat, and, I, and I'm there, and they say to me, I don't care, give me your license. So for the bank, you're not a fisherman, and that is what has happened. You do not exist in the eyes of the state. And Manuel offered some thoughts that I think really put a point on what these fishermen need to turn the situation around for the long term. 
Many who know us understand that we come from another reality, know that we are working people, and that we have been left alone without help from the government, even though we have a stable fleet that today whose product feeds populations not only in Peru, but in the world. We simply ask our government and our Peruvian businessmen who export to take care of us, to be patriotic, and work towards having a very solid and productive sector. Now to Mexico, where we spoke with Inez Lopez of Kobe. Inez talked a lot about the resilience of coastal fishing communities, many of which were able to simply close down to outsiders to protect themselves from the pandemic. But that didn't necessarily buffer them from all of its impacts. So Kobe is Comunidad y Biodiversidad. It's a Mexican NGO based in, in Sonora, in the Gulf of uh, California, but we have four different offices at national level. We have 20 years experience in sustainable fisheries and marine conservation through effective participation of coastal communities. What we've seen is uh, some socioeconomic impacts specifically. Coastal communities in Mexico have one of the main uh, uh, things uh, that we, they did to, to ensure that they are safe is that they closed the communities. They decided voluntarily and they did this before the government said anything, which is also important because they took the lead to do something for themselves, to protect themselves. So they closed the communities and they didn't let anyone into the communities, not even aid sometimes. I, I talked with lots of fishermen and fisherwomen and they said, we are okay, we're not going to um, die of hunger, for example. We're not going to, we, we can meet our basic needs with what we have. But what we need is, not, is people not to bring the virus because if mm. the virus gets here, we're going to face serious trouble. Now, while many communities have been able to keep COVID out of their communities, that doesn't mean they haven't seen impacts, particularly on the price of fish. They saw a huge reduction on the prices and the, and the um, options, the market options to sell their products. So on the one hand, international markets were completely collapsed, completely, and national market also was lowered. And Mexico in particular, it's a country that exports fisheries. The production is bigger than the demand. So if you cannot uh, export your product, then you end up with lots of product that you cannot do anything about it because there is not enough market at national level. And also the mar national market, it's being restricted because of the, of the transportation, uh, uh, confined lo lockdown measures and so on. There was less markets in which you could sell your product and also the price was lower by 30 to 60%, which is a lot for a sector that usually lives in the day. Most fishers, they don't have this um, culture of saving the money, but they just live on the day. If they cannot sell their products as, at a fair price, uh, some of them decided to stop fishing because they said, I pay more for the gas that I need to put my boat on the sea than what I'm going to get, to get paid for if I go fishing. Inez also talked about some of the unique vulnerabilities that have emerged, particularly for women and with respect to nutritional security. Also, what we've seen is that women are more vulnerable because women, they are, they are in charge of the uh, economy in the house. 
So now the role is even more important because if you have only one dollar to manage, then you need to really make magic out of that dollar that you're earning because you need to feed your family no matter what. Most of the men that weren't able to go out to fish, they stayed at home. But women that couldn't go out to fish or couldn't go out to do whatever job they were doing at the fishing value chain or whatever, they, they transformed their situation, their employment situation, and they, they started to generate self, self-employment. So, for example, women in La Paz, in Baja California Sur, they started to sew these uh, face masks and sell reusable face masks. Others started to uh, process the little fishing resources that were um, that were harvested, they started to process them and change. Instead of selling them fresh, they start to process and put them, can them, or, or I don't know how you say it in English, but when you put them in vacuum on the, mm-hmm. and you seal them, mm-hmm. because the market is more open to processed products when a pandemic comes, apparently. And you know, when yeah. everybody was crazy, buying lots of stuff <laughs> in the markets and, and, storing tons of, uh, of um, uh, paper towel and so on. <laughs> what you want is something that you can store properly. So it's easier to sell something that has been processed rather than fresh. Mm-hmm. And this role is mainly done by women, which are also uh, very in, um, very uh, well they participate a lot in the commercialization the marketing of and the and the selling of the products and this is also a place where they become vulnerable because in order to sell the product you need to go out of your home and you are more exposed one of the things we ask everyone we speak to is whether they see any long-term impacts positive or negative, of this major disruption. I'd like to close today with Inez's thoughts on this question because they really illustrate how unprecedented this pandemic has become, how it's turned from a short-term event to a long-term reality. We don't know how, how long is it going to last. Mm. Uncertainty makes it very difficult because you're not going to change you're not going to change your system if this is a thing for a couple of months. This is a quarantine, but this, this is not longer a quarantine. This is a six-month teen uh, or a year teen. I don't know how to call it, but this is much longer. But we don't know if it's just this year or it's a three-year thing or a five-year thing or it's, it's, we're just about to get out of the situation. As long as you don't know and you're uncertain, you cannot make these changes. But this also means that you're not, you still have a chance to go back to the fisheries once things go back to normal, but you need to adapt. So they're not making huge changes. They're hoping for this to pass and for them to restart their, uh, their activities. Yeah, but this, this doesn't necessarily mean that they need to quit fishing. They just okay. need to rethink how they're going to Continue fishing in this new normality.
Thanks for joining us. Social Fishtenstein is a production of Coastal Roots Radio at the University of Guelph. We will be bringing you the voices and stories of small-scale fishermen and women from around North America and beyond for the foreseeable future of the COVID-19 pandemic. These interviews and episodes are being recorded week to week, and we aim to bring you a new one every other Tuesday. To connect with the people you've heard on this podcast, including fishermen, visit us on the Coastal Roots website at www.coastalroots.org. If you'd like to share your story with us, and we hope that you will, send an email to stories at coastalroots.org. Coastal Roots Radio is funded by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, the Errol Food Institute at the University of Guelph, and the Miapar Network. We also receive support from the American Anthropological Association and the Local Catch Network. Today, we heard from Mara Hart, Laura Fernandez-Cascan, Chris Giordano, Edwin Houghton, Manuel Ray Purisaca, Walter Olaya, and Inez Lopez. You're listening to Latin Heat by Vincent Tone. See you next time. <laughs>